As you know by now, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand that I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce a new innovation. Plus CBD Daily Balance THC-free. Daily Balance is a daily use supplement that provides the benefits of CBD without the concern of other cannabinoids like THC causing unwanted effects. Daily Balance contains the purest form of hemp-derived CBD in high concentrations to help you overcome intense challenges to mental and physical well-being. All Plus CBD products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's new Daily Balance THC-free line of oil, soft gels, and gummies. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're doing a deep dive on the subject of cognitive decline and dementia with the author of a great book, How to Prevent Dementia, Understanding and Managing Cognitive Decline. He's Dr. Richard Restack. Uh, he is a neurologist and author of over 20 books on the human brain and a great communicator on this subject. So, uh, Dr. Restack, um, you, you talk about the predicament of Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth, uh, you know, an actor uh, known uh, for his work in many movies, including uh, Captain America. Uh, he is a terrific physical specimen. You know, he's capable of all kinds of amazing athletic feats. Uh, however, uh, he recently uh, discovered that he is a carrier of the so-called Alzheimer's uh, gene, the ApoE4 gene. So uh, mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about what that portends. Should we all be getting screened for that? What are the implications? Well, it's um, one of these things. If the test is negative, you have only 10% chance you'll develop it. But if positive, you have a 9 out of 10 likelihood of Alzheimer's by age 65. So obviously that was quite disturbing to him. And he decided to just, at that time, he stopped acting. Said he wasn't going to be doing any more acting. Um, it gets back to the whole question. That, that came out, by the way. They were making a, a documentary series on uh, healthy aging and longevity. And they were, one of the things was he was going to volunteer himself to have this blood test done. And it was going to then be revealed on screen. And they were then discussing and so forth. But it was found out that uh, his test was actually uh, positive. So they canceled the on-screen revelations. Talked to him, gave him the information uh, later. You know, I mean, earlier. So uh, that, that would have been this. a little bit too much reality TV, I think, just to, to see yeah, a I guess so reaction. Reality yeah. for everybody, yeah. Yeah. And of course, the way it was, the way it was supposed to be presented would be that he would not have any idea what the answer was, what the uh, thing showed until it was revealed uh, to him on the screen when he was, uh, that'll be a little tough for any actor. Yep. I mean, how, however good you are at acting. So um, he stated he was going to take a break from acting and uh, told a BBC reporter that uh, this knowledge had triggered something in his brain so that something had sort of gone off. He said he could use his time to take preventative steps 
that could affect the rest of my life. Well, it's hard to know what preventive steps he would be taking that would interfere with him continuing to act. He was, I think, you know, I think he did eventually start acting again, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Mm -hmm. um, so what we've got here is a situation where we've got tests that couldn't be up to 90% positive, you know, volume indicating, or I should say accurate, 90% accurate. You know, that's not really very good. When you think back to things that are important in life, uh, they've got to be more than 99.9% .9 accurate. If we had 99.9% .9 accuracy in the prediction of uh, airline crashes, we'd still have a couple hundred crashes a, a year. So um, I don't think you'd want to get on a plane where there was a, a 0.1% chance or one-tenth of 1% chance that the plane would crash. I, I think you would absolutely. probably take the train exactly. instead. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> that's right. So um, what we need is something that's way over 90%. So to say to somebody, well, I'm going to give you a test about Alzheimer's, and if it's positive, you have a 90% chance of getting uh, the disease that, that really doesn't tell you a lot although once again statistics we use the term hard statistics when we think of them as hard you know as something that uh, everybody sees them the same way but actually statistics are kind of soft i give the example in my book of a patient i had about 10 years ago and i had her on a uh, anti-convulsive medicine you'll probably even be able to think of it and um it was really terrific. I mean, it, it just stopped her her uh, seizures cold. And as a side effect, a desirable side effect, it caused weight loss. So in the space of about two months, this woman had stopped having seizures and she lost 30 pounds. So she was pretty happy and so was I as the doctor. Well, about a month later, I got a letter, all the doctors in the country got a, month, a letter from the uh, Yes, the FDA or from the drug company, I think it was the drug company, stating that there was a one in 100% chance of having a blood uh, disorder, dyscrasia, coming from the use of this medicine. So one in 100,000. So I sat with her and I said, you know, that's pretty good odds. I mean, you know, you're not going to be likely to be one in 100,000 people. And look what this drug has done for you. I mean, it stopped you, essentially cured you, it seems. And not only that, you got the nice effect of losing weight, and you feel better, and you seem happier. I said, so I guess we'll continue the medicine if it's all right with you. She said, well, you might think it is, but I don't. I, I don't want a medicine that could cause those problems in my blood. And I said, well, it's one in 100,000 people. How do I know I'm not the one? I said, well, I don't. I can't tell you that. No one could tell you that. So she stopped the medicine. We better to put her back on other anticonvulsants and she gained back the weight and started to have the occasional seizure. So that shows you what, what statistic, uh, you know, I think most, I won't say most people, I've learned better than to use that term. A lot of people would say, look, I'm doing great and I'll, I'll take the chance that I'm one in a hundred thousand people. Mm -hmm. What would you do, Ron? I'm just curious. Well, you know, I, I think it's a matter of scientific literacy and I think I would, you know, I, and I, as a physician, uh, prescribe medication, and virtually every medication has some downsides. And I'm in the same predicament as you, as patients you know, have access to the side effects of medications, and they read about them. And uh, I take great pains sometimes to explain to them that these are 
you know, it's a risk-benefit equation. The benefit has to outweigh the risk. Now, if the benefit is slight, you know, then it's not worth the risk. Uh, personally, I'm pretty conservative about taking medications. Uh, but if they're, you know, for example, uh, you know, Tylenol can cause liver failure. But occasionally, yes, if I've got uh, high fever and severe body aches uh, from a That's flu, I'll take some Tylenol for relief, you know, recognizing that indeed some people uh, require liver transplants. So I think that's a, a reasonable equivalent. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the effects of stress, because you actually uh, kind of do a deep dive on that, because uh, stress is a factor. It's not the only factor, but it's a risk factor for cognitive decline. So. Uh, I guess, you know, taking the APOE test and finding out that you <laughs> have a risk, a risk for, for Alzheimer's. I mean, you have to weigh that against the effects of the stress that that might cause you. That's right, because then you're going to have to live with that. Um, you know, once again, the stress is a big contributor, I think, to cognitive uh, dysfunction. Uh, you can remember back, you get sufficiently stressed for an exam, you do poorly. Mm -hmm. You've got to get this sweet spot where you're a little bit, you know, anxious about the exam, but uh, you're not so overwhelmed that you can't function. Mm -hmm. So the same thing here, people have to try to get stressful situations under control. And the older you get, the more important it is. Is it possible that uh, high levels of cortisol, you know, chronic uh, exposure to cortisol had, can cause, I've heard that it may cause the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain to shrink. Uh, so yes. is, that, is there actually some, not just distraction, because it, it's clear that, you know, when you're stressed, it's more difficult to have recall. Like if something disturbing happens to me and I have to do a broadcast, it's uh, I'm not going to pull up the facts as readily as if I'm in you know a relaxed state. Yeah, well, of course. In other words, you're asking, well, what what should do about the stress, or what do you well, think we would do? Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly, you know, stress is ubiquitous. It's a question of how we handle stressful external events. But is it possible that uh, via practices like uh, meditation or or you know guided relaxation, uh, or you know even just uh, refreshing sleep, that we can actually slow the process by which stress uh, erodes our our brain function? Well, of course, bear in mind that, you know, one person's stress is another person's challenge. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that would uh, say, look, rather than be under that kind of stress day and night, I just give the job up. They could have I've heard that said about uh, Biden. People say, well, you know, it's such a stressful time. Now, who wants to spend the next four years continuing with this? You think he'd be happy to, to say, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, not, not to get political, but you know what I'm saying? There are yeah. people that are in stressful situations that apparently live for the challenge of being under stress. But what would be stressful to other people, they don't look upon it as stress. They look upon it as challenging. So you have to ask people, you know, what is it that causes you to feel stress? Of course, what's interesting about stress is when, when you want to know what causes a person stress, you have only to ask them. And what they tell you is that's what it is. So uh, what do you find stressful? I, I had an actor, for instance, um, a well-known actor. I won't mention his name because he was a patient and all that. But uh, you'd certainly recognize him if I mentioned his name. And uh, he used to find it stressful to go into this deli near where he lived and order a sandwich. 
because you know he, he would have. He said, I, "I don't like to and say, well, number thirteen. What is number thirteen? One." He said, "I'd find that very stressful. I have to speak up and say, I want a you know a pastrami sandwich or whatever he was ordering." So <laughs> that was his stress. And yet that evening he'd be on the stage with you know hundreds and hundreds of people watching him perform uh, a play. So um, it's, it's, it's tricky about the stress, but it's, you do find out by just asking, you know, just want to find out what it is. And then that gives you sometimes the method to suggest to the person to, uh, to get back to the holidays that you mentioned and we were talking about earlier. Some people find it very stressful to get together over uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas or any of these holidays. You know, you just try to think, well, give them a little different way of looking at it. Say, well, you know, you don't have to do anything like this for another whole year. Can't you just get by that particular day without responding with uh, anxiety and palpitations, things like that? Sounds, sounds like a cognitive behavioral therapy where you kind of reframe yeah. stress as just, yeah. you know, maybe it's just a challenge or it's, it's exciting and it, it uh, could, you know, the the fear uh, can actually motivate you to perform better. Uh, moving on to the subject of uh, brain games. Uh, that is a controversial subject because I've read stu uh, studies, both yay and nay, on the efficacy of brain games, uh, crossword puzzles, even specific brain training programs. Uh, because it's thought that some studies say that those don't really help. Other studies say they it really makes a difference in terms of preserving cognitive function. What, do you, what does the evidence suggest? Well, you use the word specific, and that's important. If you take uh, a brain game that hones a specific ability, then yes, you will improve. But it doesn't mean that your general cognitive functioning is necessarily going to improve. Uh, you gave the example of playing the sardine game with a little girl, and uh, that's, you know, she's, in fact, you even jokingly said it's probably because she's playing it a lot, thinking about it a lot. So that's, she's gotten good at it, good enough to beat uh, you. So as a result, you can say, well, that's, that's helpful, yeah. Um, and so the same thing could be said about the other brain games, the crossword puzzles, things like that. They're specific for what they are challenging, uh, what they're causing you to uh, practice on. She does have a good memory because I, the, the, night, the night before I told her that uh, she, I would be uh, having waffles with her at uh, the uh, hotel uh, uh, restaurant. And she woke up at five o'clock in the morning to tell her mom that she was going to have waffles with me and woke up the entire family. <laughs> so she doesn't remember very well. Anyway, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. We're, we're talking about uh, brain exercises. And can you exercise your brain the way that you exercise a muscle or is it different? Well, you can. I mean, as I say, the more like memory is a good example. In fact, it's probably the best example. The more you exercise your memory, the better it will be uh, performing and the better it will stay over the years. But it's a lot of effort. I mean, you, have to, you don't have to sit down. You have to make changes. Um, I was interviewed by somebody earlier today from London, and uh, her name, well, I guess I shouldn't do this. I, I was able to convert her name into a picture, so mm -hmm. I would be yep. able to uh, quickly be able to yep. – uh, 
It's it's what is called a mnemonic device. It's one of those weird exactly. words that starts with an M and M N yes. mnemonic, but yeah. the M is silent. <laughs> yeah, th- that's that's interesting. Yeah. You, that you can actually sometimes use techniques, and I think you know you actually have a memory book that you wrote uh, once, uh, the complete guide to memory. So you probably are an expert at you know using these kind of brain assisting. Uh, techniques because, you know, if you have, so, for example, let's, let's go back to that sardine game. I know there's, there's, there's actually some, some value to mine from that is, um, daddy was watching us play, uh, and he said, one of the ways he, he was coaching me. He said, one of the ways you can yeah. better remember these, cause he says, it's, if you just rely on your visual memory, you know, you see like, you know, uh, eight different sardines. And you're using your visual memory. But if you assign a name to them, like uh, the sardine with the bikini is the bikini girl. And if yep. you assign a name to the one who's wearing like a, a skirt, the mini skirt girl, um, mm-hmm. then you actually can retrieve better. You have two hooks. You have the visual hook and you have the uh, the word hook, the word association hook. So you can actually utilize both parts of your brain. Is that part of the way that you can invoke that? Oh, well, sure. By substituting uh, numbers for pictures. Like, um, I remember a number from the other day. They were there. I was taking a course. They said, this is the number you need. So it was 208, and then it was uh, <coughs> 208, um, seven. Um, let's see, 208730. And of course, I just did that by substituting. I see a picture, the first name, the first, the two rhymes with shoe. So I see a shoe. Zero rhymes with uh, hero. So I think of somebody like, uh, oh, Max Verstappen from Formula One. And then the third one, eight, is a skate. So he's holding a skate in one hand. He's in the middle, and he's holding a shoe in the other. And then you go into seven, which rhymes with heaven. And then the next is sign, which is which rhymes with uh, sign uh, nine. And then finally, the, the other one is three. So there's a tree there. So you just read that across. I can still remember the number. There's no particular reason to remember it because it's a course I took a week or two ago. But it's still there because I took the time to formulate it in the form of uh, pictures. And that's yeah. what's the key to it. Take information and try to make a picture out of it. I, I'm not sure that would help me. I think I, I, I would have remembered the number, but then when you started substituting all the imagery, it got confusing for me. Yeah, but I guess yeah, it could work. It, it could work for some well, people. One through nine, each one of them has a specific number. Mm-hmm. You know, and it rhymes with, with, with a word. And okay. then you just do that. Zero is hero, and you think of whoever is your hero. Oh, okay. So, so it's, it's fungible across all numbers you know whether it's your social security number or whether it's you know a phone number yeah absolutely right right. so you can it it, and it's your particular uh way of recalling that okay got it um let's talk a little bit about um the uh, uh impact of exercise because i think among all the modalities you know, uh, brain games controversial. Yeah, stress. You know, there's a you know certainly an interplay. Uh, you know, diet. Okay, there's some studies like the Mind Diet that suggests that 
cognitive function is preserved with a diet that's akin to the Mediterranean diet. Okay, fine. But most decisively, of all these interventions, exercise seems to stand head and shoulders above in terms of preserving cognitive function. So what does the science say? Well, it's true. It increases blood perfusion to the brain, and that's very good. It uh, also keeps you from uh, becoming uh, inactive in terms of um, balance. Falls are frequent in older people, and if they wound up with a head injury as a result of the fall, then they've got all that that goes along with it with concussions and all this. It's a precarious time. I think it's important, and it's really, when you think back to it, it's only in the last, oh gosh, I guess 60 years or so that it's been important. I remember in, in uh, medical school, there was a guy that used to go out on the streets here in Georgetown and would run along the streets, and we used to f make fun of him. We used to say, what the hell is he doing out there? I mean, well, why not running? Because nobody ran unless you're on a track. Exactly. I have the same uh, recollection is that people, when I was a kid, the people who were running were like, you know, top flight athletes. Nobody ran recreationally right. who wasn't on the, on, you know, a running right. team. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Your next door neighbor wouldn't decide before, you know, exactly. went to work to run. But now it's, it's there and I think it's good. It's good. But I think the thing you have to run, remember is it's important to do something that you enjoy doing. I mean, that's another aspect of it. You asked about games and things like that. You want to do something that you enjoy doing, not that you feel forced to do. Uh, if you enjoy doing the crossword puzzle, you know, get up every morning by all means and do it. If you enjoy running around the block a few times before you shower or go to work, by all means do it. But there's actually some evidence that something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, is, mm -hmm. uh, is enhanced from exercise, is there some truth to that? Yes, there is. The neurotrophic factor does increase with exercise, and then that helps supposedly uh, the uh, growth of, or I was in may even multiplication of brain cells. We've got quite a bit of differences of opinion about that. It used to be, we say, well, it really didn't happen, and then it was shown that it does happen in the brain that the cells can multiply. Um, but you know, we don't. We're not at the point where we can predict and control. Those are the two words that are important. Mm -hmm. can control where it happens and predict what the effects of BDNF will be in every particular. Uh, so, in other words, brain. results may vary. It's not uh, the ultimate bulwark against cognitive decline. Um, all right. So, um, there are uh, there are new drugs on the launch pad. Uh, and a lot of controversy about these drugs because uh, the, the first one, uh, Aduhelm, I believe it's yes. pronounced, uh, was a drug that was created a lot of controversy, was passed, I think, under some pressure from the uh, very vociferous uh, Alzheimer's community uh, because they said, hey, look, it, it might offer some help and, you know, we can't withhold this, this, this ray of hope. Uh, but a lot of neurologists are not anxious to use it. And now there's a successor drug. It's called lecanemab, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which has a little bit potentially less in the way of side effects. Brain bleeds and hydrocephalus are among the problems. Um, and uh, has and some efficacy. 
I'm sorry. Up to twenty up to twenty three percent of people who take these drugs are at risk of these uh, things that you just mentioned. I, I talked to a so, neurologist recently. I mean, you know, it's like one of those uh, water cooler conversations at my office, and yeah. uh, he said he he wouldn't use these medications. And he's he's a top flight neurologist yeah. at a major uh, hospital. He says he he he's reluctant to start using these medications on his patients. That's interesting. Yeah, that's it's. Uh, I can see why he would. I mean, they have to be infused. They have to be followed carefully. There, you know, there's got to be. Uh, there's you know, one quarter almost of the people that are on it are going to have these problems, and you can't necessarily predict ahead of time who's going to have the cerebral hemorrhage. So, are they efficacious? Uh, and is it a matter of picking the right? patient at the right time, you know, early diagnosis, and then you use these medications? Is it sometimes, uh, you know, using them after, you know, if the horse gets out, you know, shutting the barn door after the horse gets out? Well, we're limited by the fact that the, the dementia is heterogeneous, and there's probably, we know, about four or five or six main causes, but there's probably hundreds of causes, all of them genetic. And some of the people will do well, but it's, it's just a very... Crapshoot in terms of which one is going to be the one that's going to benefit from it, and those that do benefit will say, "Well, that's great. This is this can happen." Well, it can happen, but you've got to find somebody else who has the same genetic profile. So it sounds like this uh, this these types of interventions are in their infancy. Do you predict that uh, they'll get better with time? That we'll actually kind of crack the case, or or is it uh, a matter of that we just should be emphasizing prevention. It'd be a lot cheaper than these ultra expensive drugs. And if we're talking about tens of millions of people who have dementia, wow, that could just break the bank of the U.S. economy. Well, if you think about the goal, if the goal is to uh, cure Alzheimer's, I think we're a long way away from that. If the goal is to extend the lifespan so that someone actually has about uh, five years of, you know, uh, relief from the disease or even delay the onset of the disease by five years, that's going to solve a lot of problems because most of the patients, as you know, are up in their 70s and 80s, so that many of them will die of other causes. So the disease has been controlled but not uh, cured. So that's one of the things. And the other thing is that there's various possible causes of, of uh, Alzheimer's. We'll just stick for that for a moment. Um, there, the, the amyloid hypothesis is the one that we're totally hobby horse of all the drug companies because there's been, uh, you know, they're committed to finding a drug for it with anti-amyloid uh, treatment. But uh, it, it, it's a target. It's something that we can can discern and that we can then use medications to like plaque busters. But there's other targets that are not that are being ignored. I mean, inflammation just by itself. Is, uh, should be a target because uh, Alzheimer's, the plaque could well be the result of the inflammation rather than any concomitant uh, with it. So it could be that the major underlying cause is uh, something like inflammation or some other reason. So if you look into the, if any of the listeners are curious to do so and look online about, uh, you'll find that there's a lot of other research that's being done on the causes of Alzheimer's, but the ones that are being funded, particularly funded by the government, are uh, all amyloid, anti-amyloid things. One of the things I mentioned in the end is, unfortunately, uh, 
drug companies uh, have to please their uh, their investors who want something back from the money that they're putting in. So they do keep pushing the button on this uh, anti-amyloid uh, approach, which may or may not be uh, the one that's going to come up with the cure. Now, the two drugs that you mentioned are both anti-amyloid, and uh, they may or may not be effective, but some people like the neurologist you spoke with doesn't want to use them. So he's probably, I mean, I know he has a stance on it because he's uncomfortable with the side effects that come along with these. Yeah, uh, you know, so uh, clearly some progress is going to be made, but uh, I think uh, what I emphasize is that we really should be working on uh, prevention. And although prevention is not a total uh, bulwark against uh, sometimes very deterministic genes that push people in that direction, uh, I think it can That's go a, a long way to it, it can go a long way to. Uh, reducing the burden of these uh, conditions on our society. Uh, well, okay, so great talking to you. And a lot more information uh, in How to Prevent Dementia, Understanding and, and Managing Cognitive Decline by today's guest, Dr. Richard Restack. Uh, it's a big problem. Uh, we're all going to uh, encounter it, whether it's a family member or ourselves, uh, and our society is going to have to deal with it. So it's something that we really need to uh, address. Um and uh, your book is, is a great step towards understanding. So thanks very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed a lot. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Richard Restek. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I want to thank you for listening to the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app and get new episodes automatically downloaded every weekday. And please give us a rating and review. It truly helps new people discover Intelligent Medicine. The Intelligent Medicine Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their health care professionals for any such conditions. Finally, please visit drhoffman.com and discover everything Intelligent Medicine has to offer, including frequently updated, unbiased health news and fully vetted product and supplement recommendations. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I've partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoppinStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoppinStore.com. DearHoppinStore.com.